Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from Bakhmut, discuss the impact of the last year on women in Ukraine, and we discuss the work of volunteers on the war effort throughout the country. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 8th of March, one year and 12 days since the start of the full-scale invasion. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Aliona Hilivka, former MP in Ukraine, now senior consultant at Atticus Partners in London, and British volunteer Felicity Spector. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from the front lines. Yeah, hi, David. Hi, everybody. So let's go back to Bakhmut. That's still carrying on. The battle there is still raging. Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of Wagner, has said that Wagner have taken the, the eastern side of the city up to the, the centre, the river that runs through the centre. I mean, that's that's not unexpected. I think that sort of reflects what we've seen in the last few weeks. We know that, that, that Bakhmut is basically closed by Russia from the east, the north and the south. So it's uh, it's entirely sensible to say that they've take, taken the east. I mean, they've already said that they're in the centre of the city. So I think this is Prigozhin just trying to keep the the tempo of commentary. He's just trying to com- constantly say that Wagner's progressing, they're moving forward. They're, I mean, he can't announce a great victory, but he's just saying, oh, we've done this, we've done that. And that's that's entirely to be expected because he's in this spat, as we know, with Shoigu, Defence Minister Sergei Shoigu. There's this sort of internal Kremlin power thing going on between the two of them. Shoigu was down in Mariupol a couple of days ago, probably in response to Prigozhin releasing images of himself somewhere in the Donbass. So those two are having a sort of, you know, whatever the opposite of a bromance is, but they're, they're, they're getting it on down in the Donbass. And uh, so I think it's entirely you know, accurate to say that they've taken the eastern part of the city. Now, yesterday, President Zelensky uh, offered an opinion. He said that if Bakhmut was taken by Russia, it would provide a, quote, open road, unquote, to, to wider areas in the Donbass, the Kramatorsk, Slovyansk and, and elsewhere. I mean, I, I'm not sure. It, uh, certainly it would give access to the roads to those areas, but they are once outside of Russian control. They are very heavily defended by Ukrainian positions. I, I mean, we've seen Russia has gone nowhere quickly, nowhere very quickly when they have got control of a number of roads. So to suggest that Bakhmut is going to unlock anything, I think, is a little bit fanciful. I think President Zelensky there 
is is just keeping the pressure on, keeping the international pressure on, and the focus is probably a better way of saying it, the focus on what's happening in Bakhmut. I don't think there would be an open road that, that Russia would just be able to to motor sort of 40 k's up to Krematorsk or, or head southwest. I mean, they've not been able to get through Vuladar, which is down to the southwest of Bakhmut. They've yeah, they've just not been able to get down that way or get through Vuladar and sort of come come at Bakhmut from that, from that direction. So I, I just don't think they've got the... They've got the the equipment, let alone the the um, military ability to fight through the positions that are that are there. But it's still very, very. It is very violent, and still not certain exactly where the where the lines are now. Elsewhere, I was uh, I was in a I was watching the, the the House of Commons, Britain's House of Commons Defence Select Committee this morning. So the Defence Select Committee is a, a number of MPs from all parties in in Parliament that hold the MOD to account and they run a number of different um, uh, investigations looking at looking looking at certain things and they take evidence from from military and civil servants and the and politicians. So today James Heapy, who is the, the Minister for the Armed Forces, so Ben Wallace is the Defence Secretary, he's in charge of uh, well the whole shooting match literally and underneath him, there's, there are four ministers. James Heapy is the Minister of the Armed Forces, come back to him. Then there's um, a Veterans Procurement and, uh, and a Civil Service Policy chap. Uh, sorry, no, the, I mean, there is a Civil Service Policy guy, but there's also another minister you know, accountable in the House of Lords. But James Heapy, as the Minister for the Armed Forces, is the second in command, if you like. So if Ben Wallace has got responsibility for everything, um, James Heapy as the minister, he basically he has the operational bits. He has, in many respects, it's said to be the best job in in defence as far as politics is concerned because he's he's just doing all the fighty stuff. He hasn't got to work out the smoking policy and don't leave your bikes around the back of the building and all that kind of stuff and pensions and God knows everything that Ben Wallace has to do. So James Heapy was up in front of the uh, up in front of the panel this morning and he was saying uh, saying a number of things. He was talking about. He was asked why there are such incremental offers of of military aid to Ukraine, and he said that basically each extension of capability, when the, when the the tanks are unlocked and high Mars and air defence and all the rest of it, each extension of capability is linked to a specific outrage from from Russia because there's a consideration that if I mean so the argument is that if we took all the weapons that have been gifted and promised to Ukraine today, if they had been promised and gifted ten months ago. Uh, it, it could be a very, very different space. And James Heapy was saying, well, that's that's exactly right. If we had gifted everything a long time ago, he said it, quote, could have been very, very different in a catastrophic way if we'd gone all in, unquote. So he was saying that, that actually what he was describing was the, the political appetite for, for any capability escalation. And that is always a, a, um, a discussion between allies and, and industry and what's the art of the possible where the politics are because uh, they're trying to tread this fine line they're dealing with with a you know a person in putin who who is in many many ways completely reckless other ways rational rational in his own mind but his own mind can, you know includes uh, nuclear weapons and uh, and the capacity for much greater violence so yeah they're trying to, they're trying to tread a fine line but that's what james heaper was saying they're also talking about the jeff so the jeff is a joint expeditionary force it's it's not nato light because nato is by far and away the you know the big the big security provider here but jeff joint expeditionary force 10 nations sort of northern european nations stretching for, it was set up by by it was a British idea, but set up with kind of everyone for Iceland, Britain, Denmark and, and the Baltic states, Nordic states, Scandinavia, that, that sort of area. Ben Wallace calls it the, the North European beer drinking community. So that sort of slice. 
uh, you know, styled as the, the, the nations that will turn up on day one of a, of a, of a punch up. So the Jeff, it has no collective security guarantee, but it is it is starting to do um, little bits and pieces. And it's like minded nations. I mean, if you look at who's gifting what and who's driving the driving the agenda on on, on gifting military aid, then you know, you, you're looking at Poland, you're looking at the Baltic states, you're looking at Norway, Sweden, Finland. I mean, they, you know, Denmark, they're all in there. They're all in the Jeff. So they are they're very much like minded. And and James James Heapy was saying that, that in terms of is there room and I've asked this of Ben Wallace before and he and he sort of dodged the question but I asked you is there a is there room for Ukraine in Jeff if if not in not in NATO or not in NATO yet but is is Jeff something we could be looking to for for some form of security architecture if not guarantees and James Heapy said that well he said quote ten ten of Ukraine's best friends are in when it comes to the Russian threat than the, the Jeff. So, you know, very warm words there. It's looking likely, and he said the discussions are ongoing in the, in the background. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if Ukraine was uh, was drawn or invited closer to the to the Jeff over the next few months. One to keep an eye on. And just finally, the discussion then moves on to grain and the Defence Select Committee goes go, does go out and visit places to, to get the facts on the ground. And they were in Odessa. They didn't put a date on it, I think, for security reasons. But they said a number of their members went to Odessa and said that they could they confirmed that only a fifth of the grain is getting out of Odessa at the moment. Of course, we're talking about this because Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, is in Kyiv now, today, talking to President Zelensky about the green deal, which runs out on, I think, the 18th, but in a couple of weeks' time, and and hopefully the war as well. But the, you know, the focus is on grain at the moment. Um, but Tobias Elwood, who is a former defence minister himself, he's the chair of the Defence Select Committee, he was calling for what he was calling an independent maritime force to get the grain out, to, to ensure that there's a, a safe corridor to get these ships moving, which I think they're down to sort of two or three a day now, where they should be you know, at least 10 times that number uh, to get the get the amount of grain the world needs out. Um, says Turkey is on board. He said Turkey is on board with that idea. So, so I mean, whilst the Defence Select Committee in, in and of itself doesn't have any power, they can be very influential and they 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 know what they're talking about. They So they have the credibility to put these ideas to ministers um, and put these ideas to ministers. And so there might be some some kind of movement there. That's not going to happen in the short term. But yeah, I want to keep an eye on this sort of independent maritime force, a bit like is, is what's happening, UN sponsored thing off the Hall of Africa, the counter piracy effort there, sort of in, uh, not independent, but a, a, an international maritime force there. Um, Georgia, we're going to talk about in a in a little while. So yeah, I'll take a pause there. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Just one question for you, Dom, before we go on. I mean, you mentioned how the logic, as it was explained to you, was that these incremental weapons deliveries were linked to Russian outrages, so what we call war crimes. Um, isn't isn't that argument, isn't that almost looking at it the wrong way around, that if we that these outrages are coming and actually if you give more weapons now, you could actually stop them? Why, 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 do, why do they have to... Could you just go through that again, that logic? Why do we have to wait for outrages to be committed before, we- before weapons and aid is delivered? Or have I got the wrong end of the stick there? No, I mean, well, I mean, I'm happy to go go over it again. Bearing in mind, you know, this is not, this is not, my, these aren't my words. This is not my logic. But I mean, he was, he was. So James Heapy, Minister for the Armed Forces, was explaining this in the context of political appetite for escalating the capabilities that are, that are gifted. So, in all political leaderships, when it comes to granting weapons 
and any suggestion of NATO being drawn into a shooting match with Russia. So I think I think it's a very, very delicate line to, that they've had to tread for the last year. Bearing in mind that, you know, it's not wasn't universally popular. We see now actually there's more NATO with Sweden and Finland likely to almost certainly going to join NATO, more NATO on, on Russia's doorstep because of this war than less. But it wasn't always that wasn't always guaranteed. I mean, there was a there was a chance Putin thought this would split the alliance. And it's for it's for the historians to, to, to wade into it in, in the coming years to see how close that actually came. So, you know, they, they're trying to drag the alliance forward. Look how far they have come, whilst at the same time, not not allowing anyone to be to be um, hived off any splits in the alliance, no matter how big or small that independent or that individual country may be any any chip away at the block of nato would be a massive win for putin and they and he would have played it as such so i think i just think there's intense nervousness in the political landscape about weapons and and hence i mean maybe may you know i don't and i don't think it was sort of directly right they've done this we'll give them high mars they've done that we'll give them air defense but i think it was just a, a slow realization of the political reality but he was trying to describe this the, the political appetite for um, getting more involved in, in the war. Thank you very much for that, Dom. That was that was really useful, actually. Thank you. Aliona, can I come to you? Aliona, thank you so much for joining. Yesterday, we spoke to a Ukrainian woman in Poland who talked to us, talked to us a little bit about uh, how Ukrainian refugees in that country uh, are, are working together, are supporting each other. Um, could I ask you a little to talk a little bit about the situation in Ukraine itself and how the invasion has impacted on Ukrainian women? Hi, David. Um, it's my pleasure to be in this space again. Certainly, the women have been affected by the war tremendously. They have suffered a lot throughout this war ever since the beginning of the war in 2014, especially in the last year. But we have also seen the immense showcase of courage on their side and taking the initiative and fighting through all the challenges. So just to start on, on the challenges. It's quite difficult in Ukraine right now because women have taken on the roles of, you know, healing, saving lives, feeding people, their children, especially. Taking care of them has become very difficult, not just in the occupied territories or near the front lines uh, when the fighting is quite intense, but we've also seen women impacted by the war all across the country with the lack of electricity, heating, running water in the winter months. So that has made lives for women and children extremely difficult. You have to see women constantly undergoing stress. The health has been affected tremendously. And with all of the ongoing stress and worrying for their men who are on the front lines, because every single one of us has someone whose life is at risk on a daily basis. And at the same time, maintaining that spit and trying to you know, calm down the children and support them in their education, which is mostly online these days as well, um, escorting children to the bomb shelters, entertaining them there. In the early days of war, we've seen children given birth in the bomb shelters. Um, we've seen the maternity wards uh, targeted by, by missile strikes. We've seen the in increase in the premature birth by women, which I believe has tripled in the last year. So the time for all the women in Ukraine has been extremely difficult in the last year. Thanks, Aliona. Can I ask a little bit about Ukrainian women in the armed forces as well? I mean, we know that quite a few have gone gone and joined the armed forces of Ukraine. What, what do we know about what they do and, and their lives? 
Indeed, there's been a fascinating influx of women willing to serve on the front line to to oppose the Russian invasion on Ukraine ever since last February. So prior to that, I believe officially there were 32,000 women who were serving in the armed forces in various positions, rarely on the front lines, but that still was the case at times. Nowadays, I think we account for 50,000 women who are serving um, in Ukrainian armed forces. Um, about 10,000 of them are either directly on the front line or are about to get moved to the front line, so definitely in the combat positions. There has been a study conducted last year in the spring, I believe, when um, the invasion was just unraveling, with over 60% of women willing to go fight alongside men and defend their country. So that's a side of the fact that uh, women join as medics, that they need to take care of children, that they need to hold the front back home. Um, So many women have started volunteering as well. I know that for all of the women who have not joined the armed forces, they've all become volunteers in their own capacity. It's become a second and a third job for all of us after you know, trying to keep the economy going in Ukraine or, for example, me being here in London. I know that I spend at least three to four hours every day coordinating any humanitarian aid I could get and source and send off either to my brother, to his unit or someone else who asks for help. So that's an ongoing second job that we all have. But going back to the heroic women on the front line, I've personally met two of them who are most outstanding women. One of them was actually in the battle of Mariupol. Uh, She was um, in Azovstal, whose name is, you know, the the military name is Tara, aka Yulia Payevska. She was a prisoner of war. She was tortured. She told me the most horrific stories about the torture she had to endure while in Russian captivity. And then she was exchanged. And I met her on on the wonderful occasion when she's received the Magnitsky Award from Bill Browder when she was here in London last year. But another woman uh, who I found most fascinating is someone who's in Ukraine. She is called the Witch of Bakhmut. And so she's, it's Olha Bihar. She is currently fighting with her unit. She's the leader of the unit. She's fighting in Bakhmut, obviously. And she's firstly the most beautiful and secondly the, the, the bravest woman I have met thus far in, in this war. And just hearing how she gave up her very successful business and very comfortable life. I believe she had a law practice um, in Ukraine just to go and fight for Ukraine alongside of many of her male family members, I think, if I'm not mistaken, her brother is also fighting on the front line, he's younger than her, um, and and many other friends. So we've seen some fascinating stories um, come up from this war in Ukraine, and I believe there will be a lot to cover once the war is over. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Aliona. Can I ask you one more thing? I'm just thinking in terms of sort of wider societal change, thinking back in, in history to the revolution for, for women from the, the First World War in, in, in the UK, when so many men went off to fight and women were brought in to, 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 to various jobs where they hadn't been in before. And images like, for example, in the US, Rosie the Riveter in, 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 the, in the 40s and 50s. Would you put this, I mean, have you seen a, a sort of wider societal shift for women since, since the start of the full-scale invasion? And, and if so, what, what are the contours of that? How is that working? Yes, absolutely. So there has been a law adopted by the Ukrainian parliament on women having to register for military service as well, just according to their professions, wherever they could be useful. 
and anyone who's done a, a certain role in civil service that could align with military practice, logistics, medical experience, political science, um, anything that could really help out with the war um, strategy. All women were are now obliged to register and to kind of be ready to be conscripted to go to the front line. I think since actually Ukrainian women were involved in the armed forces ever since the World War One. Sadly, they were not officially recognized as combat veterans, but that has shifted in Ukraine after the war had started in 2014. So now women are officially recognized as combat veterans or as military servants. They are now entitled to the full pension. So we now have a, a certain category of female veterans, sadly, I guess. Luckily, both taking it, talking about it on the International Women's Day, both luckily, as we see, you know, absolutely equal rights, but also sadly, because um, it's sad that this is something that we have to go through in the 21st century for all of us to be ready to, to go and fight for the country and be conscripted. So yes, we're all registered, ready to go serve whenever we are being called for. But as I've mentioned before, there's currently a queue to join the, the immediate front line. And there's a queue of women who are basically waiting to be conscripted to go serve their country. Thank you very much, Aliona, for that. Um, just on the point about volunteers, I think this might be the, the right moment to bring in our guest, Felicity Spector. Felicity, would you just introduce yourself briefly? And then I'd really like to hear your thoughts on what Aliona has said about some of the actions and the roles of women in the past year. What, what have you seen in, in your journeys across Ukraine? Oh, hello there. And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's a great honour to be on it. Yeah, my name's Felicity. I've, my grandparents actually came from Dnipro, but I, I never met them. They, they died a long time before I was born. But I guess that's probably why I felt quite drawn to the situation. I, I first visited Ukraine in 1991 when it became independent. And obviously there's been these, you know, it's, it's, it's just dominated my life really for the last year, like a lot of people. Um, and I've had the opportunity to travel to right across Ukraine to, to many cities where I've met loads of different volunteers in all sorts of spheres. I, I have a little Instagram account, or quite a big Instagram account, which I, I, I do baking and things. So I have lots of contacts in the food world. And the first time I went was after I'd heard that a bakery in Kiev called Bakehouse, they'd had their warehouse destroyed in a bomb attack. It's, it's near Irpin. And they'd lost all their sort of spare equipment, a lot of ingredients. And they, helped, they were doing lots of humanitarian work with the bakery and making bread for refugees and the armed forces and so on. And I thought, well, I have lots of contacts in the, in the baking world. I guess I could probably try and find them this equipment. So I asked them what they needed. And within two days, I already had promises of, um, of everything they needed. And then I found an amazing charity who who was able to drive with us to Kiev to to deliver it, and then it, it just took off from there. And I've met loads of loads of different people who are volunteers. A lot of them are women because, uh, as uh, Aliona said, their their husbands or, or family members are fighting, and they have set up you know really efficient and um, dedicated organisations you know out of their own homes a lot of the time, which they're then using to raise money to procure stuff and then and get it delivered to to frontline villages and and military units it's it's really astonishing to see the 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 kind of extraordinary things that ordinary people are doing every day 
Absolutely. Well, would you give us a little bit of a, a tour on the uh, some of the organisations that you've seen across Ukraine? And then maybe, I mean, we've we've spoken to quite a few people who are not Ukrainian, who've gone back, they might have family ties, they, they might not. I'm, I'm very curious to, to your thoughts on just to sort of just to just, just discuss and think about who these people are, what their motivations are, and how how their work has changed over the last year. Thank you. I mean, the last trip, I just got back and I wanted to go and visit the, the Lviv Volunteer Kitchen. And I know you had Richard Woodruff as a guest a few days ago. He's a British volunteer who's been helping at this kitchen since the start of the war. The kitchen's been going since 2014, but it's become this kind of hub for international volunteers. Thanks in, in, in a large part to Richard's kind of sterling work on Twitter, publicising what they're doing. And they are in Lviv, which is a relatively safe city as, as far as it goes. So it's, it's not a terrible place for people to, to volunteer in, in for a couple of weeks. And they're very welcoming and they have a very good setup and they basically make soups and porridges and things like that. And the ingredients get dehydrated, packaged up, and then somebody turns up with a big lorry and delivers it to, to soldiers. So it's a very efficient organisation that they're kind of running out of space because they've, they've grown so big. They had people, when I went there, from all over the world. There was a, a guy called Damien who was a nurse who'd, who'd saved up his annual leave and he was working away there. There was a, a guy from Uruguay, two Germans. I mean, there were people from literally everywhere, Ireland. An American guy turned up while I was there and, and he would brought three drones with him all the way from somewhere in the middle of America and he'd, he'd spent four days travelling there. And he was actually a roofer. He had a roofing business. And so after he dropped off these drones for Richard to donate, he was about to go to Butcher and volunteer for a charity uh, which helps to rebuild homes because obviously he had these skills. So I think a lot of people with, with specific skills like that, there are quite a few very well set up charities in and around the Kiev area and in Kharkiv as well. There's one called CARP Project. And they are helping to to rebuild houses and um, try and, you know, give people back some of the, you know, what they've lost, at, at least, you know, so they have somewhere warm and dry to live, maybe while they apply for a grant to get like a proper home rebuilt. But um, there's a lot of work like that that's going on. And then places like this kitchen, of, of, you know, they're very well set up. You know, they've got people who who speak all sorts of different languages. So, you, you know, people can understand each other. And there's a lot of resources now I think which Richard's helped put together for people who want to go and volunteer but most of the people I've been meeting are Ukrainians because that's what as as Aliona was saying everyone has this second job where they're just volunteering in their spare time and it's absolutely extraordinary to see the, the, the kind of risks people take you know that I met a guy in Odessa and a, a lady who, who works with him and they drive to the Kherson region he's, he's there right now um, and I, I had brought some power stations and some other bits and pieces for him and they deliver stuff to some villages there where there's nothing there's no electricity there's often no water supply people don't have any facilities and they really rely on these volunteers reaching them and so he you know he drives through areas which come under frequent missile attack where there might be mines but you know they're prepared to do it because they really want to help those families who are sort of you know relying on that help I've been to some really incredible bakeries who have just adapted their work to making bread for mostly for either refugee families, internal refugees, or for the armed forces. So there's one that we help in Odessa called Do, and they make the most incredible sourdough bread. It's absolutely delicious. I mean, the head baker, Ilya, used to work in a three Michelin star restaurant when he was working abroad. So he's, he's, you know, he's very skilled. And all, all of them just 
everything is you know free they don't charge for anything they make a bit of money by selling other things to kind of keep the supplies coming in but basically they rely on donations and and from help from outside and they make hundreds of loaves every day they've started making food to send to frontline troops these sort of energy bars and things and it, it just keeps going they, they they seem to have this incredible energy they sort of all through the electricity cuts they, they managed to get a generator eventually and fuel so they didn't stop and you know it's just really inspiring to see you know what people are up to Thank you very much, Felicity. I've got I've got sort of a, a, a twin question for you. One is what I find quite interesting about this chat and about about what you're speaking about is we've obviously spoken, as you said, to quite a few of these volunteers before we spoke to Richard from uh, Frontline Kitchen. I think it was th- three or four weeks ago, and it was a really fascinating interview. I mean, we heard a lot about what he does there, and you've got this interesting sort of eagle eagle eyed bird's eye view on, on lots of different places. And with your travel, you've seen a lot of a lot of different places. So so this sort of synth- this sort of conversation. Sort of slightly zooming out, I think it's quite interesting. What what would you say about some of the challenges that these organisations have faced? I mean, if it's bureaucratic, political, uh, in terms of procurement and resources, and um, and yeah, I mean, let, let's start with that. What would you make of that? How has that changed over the last year? So a lot of the way that these organisations work, they're, they're often very small. They're, the way it works is very direct. I mean, some people would say, oh, my gosh, it's so unregulated. But that's how it works. So somebody says, I'm in touch with, with this village or with this military unit. This is what they need. Uh, I'm going to be raising money. Here's my bank account. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll show you the proof of purchase when I've bought these things. And then I'll show you the end result. And so it's very transparent. And I guess there's an element of trust involved. But people basically donate to someone they either know directly or that they trust they raise the money, then they try and get hold of everything, and then they have to deliver it. So it's it's a very sort of direct, no middleman uh, process. And, and a lot of it, you know, there's videos on social media to sort of prove what they've bought, and, and then a picture of them with a soldier with their face sort of obscured, showing that it was delivered. A lot of times it's... <laughs> They, they can buy stuff, you know, they want financial donations because they can buy things like food, blankets, sort of basic supplies within Ukraine. It's a lot cheaper than bringing stuff in from the West. It's very expensive to bring a van. Like when we came with the bakery supplies, it cost thousands for the insurance and the petrol and so on. So you wouldn't do that unless you had, you know, either stuff that was impossible to get or that was very expensive and had been donated. A lot of times it's stuff which is quite hard to find anywhere. So Motorola radios, for example, that that they use for communication with these encrypted radios, they are in incredibly short supply. I think some of it's to do with the amount that's being shipped to Ukraine. They don't normally have those, you know, that kind of demand. But also there's this chip shortage, microchip shortage, which means, you know, there, there, haven't, there hasn't been a big, a big sort of stock to, to draw on. Uh, and things like... Um, thermal visions and night visions which i think some of the military units want and they are subject to export controls so i think those count as dual use so a lot of paperwork is needed a lot of times you can bring in stuff like generators and um, power stations because when ukraine was having all the problems with electricity now they've managed to restore a lot of the supplies but obviously there's still an ongoing problem in many regions they basically removed any need to pay any kind of customs duty they they just needed them they said forget about duty we won't charge anybody anything just we need them just bring them in if you've got them and a lot of times those things were quite hard to find even in poland because everyone was trying to get hold of them and there's you know if you tried to order them from within ukraine there was like a either a high price or 
a, a huge delay in getting them. So that was when they needed people to try and get hold of them in, in Western countries and find ways of getting them into the country. But yes, it's this ongoing struggle. Sometimes you get a tip off. It's like, I've got tourniquets. We can get tourniquets. We can get sea locks. Good price, you know, if you buy them now. So people who have good contacts are, are, are very valuable. Can I ask, I mean, you've met lots of different volunteers, it sounds like, from all, from all over the world and especially from within Ukraine. What would you say to people thinking about how you know, they want to help and maybe even travelling there? Like, what, what are some of the issues and the challenges and the, the problems that people face when they get out there? I mean, I, I, can't, imagine it's, I can't imagine every single minute would, 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 would always be the most pleasant. I mean, yes. I mean, it's, you know, the British government official advice is not to travel to Ukraine. There would be no consular help if anything happened. You can get insurance. It's expensive. Um, I wouldn't recommend not getting insurance but because, because I don't think you'd want to be a burden on the Ukrainian system if anything was to happen. But yes, it's not an impossible place. I mean, you know, you, you get a flight to Poland and a train and that's it. But there are lots of places which are extremely risky. I mean, you know, anywhere... In the eastern Ukraine, anywhere in, in the south, you know, those places are extremely dangerous and not recommended for people just to kind of turn up. I mean, I think even there's probably heavy restrictions. There are lots of roadblocks when you go to the Donetsk region, for example. They call them block posts. Every sort of few miles, there's a block post. You have to show documents. If you don't have a reason to be there, you're not going to get through. So those sort of areas aren't really on. So you can support organisations that go. For example, I was helping out sending some medical supplies and some um, power stations and things to the Antitila charity. They are part of a, a pop group whose three main members served in the armed forces as combat medics for six months. And one of their other band members, Dimitro, is, is a, a volunteer and he organises these charity runs. So they go to the Donetsk region, Kharkiv region, once every couple of weeks and they deliver all sorts of things um, and because they do it all the time and they've, they've got all their contacts you know sometimes they need specific things or they do fundraising there's plenty of ways to help which um, are very sort of effective and very targeted and you know you feel confident that they're not sort of a you know these organizations are very trustworthy basically and they're not going to misuse the money or, or, or not get it to the right place because you can see what they're doing. It's, as I said, it's all very transparent. That's one of the good things about social media. So when you go, you see them, you know, they give the stuff to the soldier and then they sort of line them up and they say, oh, let's just do a quick video. And then they record it and he says, oh, thank you very much. You know, we're really grateful. Thank you to the donors. Little thumbs up. And, uh, and then that gets posted on their Twitter. So, you know, it's all very easy to see what, what they're doing with the money. Just one more question from me before I open this up to Aliona and Dom, who've been listening, who I'm sure will have questions as well. But something you said earlier really struck me that obviously you said, you know, you're getting sometimes you'll get tip offs from certain units or certain contacts saying, oh, you know, we really need X or we really need Y. Um, do, you, do you think you get a sort of sense of what's actually in so short supply then and what the next big issue or, or problem will be on the front line if, if, if you've got this being fed back to you in terms of what oh, we have we really need radios at the moment and just on that right now what do you where do you think the greatest need is they always seem to need the same things i mean it's really sad that they need things like tourniquets and you know these med urgent medical supplies but that's what they you know that's what's happening there's a lot of people being injured and a lot of supplies you, you know you, 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 they look like they're available on amazon but those a lot of them aren't very good quality, so everyone's looking for the ones which actually are sort of, you know, the the ones that the US or the British Army would use. Um, so those kind of things, again, 
there's often a delay and you know you have to pre-order them or whatever or try and get some if somebody gives you a tip and these at the moment yeah communications again they use starlink a lot but there's obviously a question mark sometimes over that and these radios again because they're in short supply i think people just think oh we better try if if we see some we need them you know we better pre-order them and then if 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 they come in we've got at least we've got we we know where we're going to get them from so i think a lot of the time i don't know whether it's they need them instantly or whether they don't want to not have them but yes it's i have a friend who has a medical charity and and she said she always sends things off and, and she really wishes that they would never be used but sadly they are used so you know, there's just a, a never-ending need for these IFACs, the individual first aid kits that the soldiers carry around with them and all the related supplies. Celox, which is like a blood coagulant and things. I mean, not something I've ever come across before, but I guess very useful if you're in, you know, in, in, on a frontline unit. Thank you very much, Felicity. Alion, do you have any questions for Felicity? I think uh, and then maybe we'll go, if, if not, we'll go to Dom to talk a little bit about Georgia and get Aliona's reaction to that. But first, Aliona, you've been listening to this. Any, any thoughts on this? Yes, actually, just to echo what uh, Felicity was saying about the tremendous work she's done on, on helping Ukraine and all the volunteers. First of all, thank you, Felicity. And I, I feel like as a Ukrainian, I want to thank absolutely everyone who is not Ukrainian, who's far away from the country, but still feels like this is the cause that they want to get involved with because every little bit helps and actually saves lives. And to come back to your question, David, about what's the most fundamental things that people need on the front lines? Because obviously I got into this business involuntarily, I guess, and was forced into becoming one of those volunteers when my brother um, went to serve in the army um, as the war started. And things like tourniquets and salogs, something I became familiar with straight away, because as I was trying to source that for my brothers, he was going straight to the front line with minimum military experience. Um, I remember getting in touch with the producers as well and them briefing me on how to use it because, you know, there's several types of salogs, for example, which is a, a blood clotting agent and helps cover up open wounds and then bullet wounds so I had to get a crash course on which one to use when because if you use it in the wrong way and the wrong type then it might actually cause into a, a casualty and death god forbid so I similarly had to get my brother on the phone and brief him quickly with the, the little batch that I got from the producers to tell him how to use it if he gets you know wounded by a bullet or if it's an open wound and I remember just being absolutely terrified exactly a year ago in March when I had to kind of absorb all of that information and pass it down to my brother, understanding that initially this might save his life and life of his his friends and, and combat mates. So anything that has to do with medical care, any wound healing treatment is highly needed on the front line right now. There was a time, again, when the wards just started and my brother was conscripted, I had to send him a bulletproof vest and, again, became an expert in that and all the plate carriers and the qualifications and NATO standards and the helmets. So I've become an expert on that as well, unfortunately. I think they are now well-sourced with that. Obviously, every season I had to resupply their whole unit and some other friends with the new Thermal underwear, knee pads, elbow pads, something that wears off quite quickly. Fresh pair of socks is always needed and welcome, as well as any antifungus treatment, anything that could be used on day-to-day basis. Just imagine people being in always humid, wet, 
conditions, not very good environment and to make their existence there as comfortable as possible. So anything you can think in that in terms of anti-flu medicine, ibuprofen, all of that really counts. And I know that many, many packages like that are being sent to Ukraine now and are in quite a high demand. I was just going to come in and say how there are some quite innovative ways of raising money nowadays because everyone's trying to sort of generate, you know, keep to keep the interest coming. And the the Antitila charity, for example, they when they go out on their trips to the Donetsk region and meet up with these units that they support, they pick up what they call sort of war trophies. So they pick up things like shell cases, um, little ammunition cases, all sorts of things like that. And then they sort of clean them up and then they auction those off because people want to buy something that's been sort of captured from the front line and, and they can raise money that way. And also when we went there, they took a load of books. There was a girl who'd come up with an idea to get a book signed by some of the defenders who, and get them to write a little dedication in the front and then auction off those books, you know, signed by the commander of one of the units. And again, they proved very popular. So they keep sort of thinking up ways of keeping people's interest going and keeping the money coming in. Because, for example, the, the 130th Battalion, who Antitila support, had their headquarters bombed just before Christmas. And all the, st- all, the, all the equipment they had, was a lot of it was lost. Thankfully, no one was killed, but a lot of their equipment that they just got and they needed to start all over again, you know, getting it all back so you know they had to suddenly put out an urgent appeal we we need this you know we need five drones we need four radios we need whatever whatever so you know the you know they have to have these contingencies because you know obviously stuff could get lost in a in a moment if 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 people are under continual attack dom i know you had a question would you like to come in yeah, sure. Firstly, thanks so much for, for joining us today. I'm just just having a look at your your feed online, and I'm just wondering, did you had you had much exposure to cooking from Ukraine or or the region before your involvement here? I mean, I'm looking at Hamantashen, and I if that's the correct pronunciation, is that where I should start? Because Aliona, I'll be interested in your in your view here, and be careful because you might actually have to, to taste it. So where should I start with trying to get into to Ukrainian cookery? And, and how was the, the Bake for Ukraine? Was it last weekend? Yeah, we had a so Cook for Ukraine, which, which is an amazing charity set up by Olya Hercules, the chef, Ukrainian chef who lives in London, and her friend Alisa Timoshkina. We had a big bake sale last week and raised, I think it was just over £10,000. So, so that was very welcome. And that, that money will all go to an organisation called the Legacy of War Foundation, which does, again, a lot of really great work inside Ukraine, helping frontline communities with medical aid, primarily, and evacuations. So Hamantashen was a spe- is a Jewish cookie that was for Purim, which is which last night. But I would say start with Olya Hercules' books, because they're very approachable. And she's got four books. In fact, I've taken copies of her books out to give to her, her brother, who's in the army in Kiev, and uh, her friend Katria, who's an amazing baker friend who's from Kherson, but now lives in exile in, in Lviv. And there are loads of really simple recipes. You could you could start with maybe the borscht, because obviously that's, you know, there's nothing more Ukrainian than borscht, uh, beetroot soup. But also there's some very simple apple cakes and things like that. There's a lot of Ukrainian ingredients, which I really love, like kind of poppy seeds and apples, curd cheese and walnuts and so on. So I tend to gravitate towards the baking side of things. 
And just a reminder to our listeners, I think if you have been listening to us for, for unfortunately, for, for a year and a bit now, Olia did come on and talk to us. I think, I believe off the top of my head, it was last April or May. I'll try and find the episode and share it later. But we have spoken to Olia Hercules. We've had her in the studio and uh, she was a wonderful guest. It was great to hear from her. Dom, can I come to you? Uh, you mentioned earlier we do need to speak about Georgia and we'll speak about Georgia and what's happening in Georgia in more depth uh, in the coming days. But could you give us just a sort of brief readout of what, what, what do we need to know what's happening in, in the country? Yeah, it will be brief because it, it it is breaking. So Georgia, so we're now we're now on the the southeast bit of the Black Sea. So Georgia, Russia, Russia to the north and invaded by Russia in two thousand eight. Turkey to the to the southwest, Armenia, Azerbaijan southeast. So Turkey, sorry, Georgia. We're talking six eight hundred kilometers southeast of Ukraine. But last couple of days, there's been huge protests in Tbilisi in, in the capital over a a new law, a foreign agents law. That's, uh, that's going through their legislature at the moment to be brought in. So the foreign agent registration, a bit, well, very almost identical. And this is the, this is the big beef, almost identical to the one that was that went through Russia. This is any media outlets, NGOs, any organisation with ties abroad. If they have, if they get more than I think it's twenty percent of their funding from abroad, they have to register foreign agents. I can't remember the exact definition or the exact, the exact wording, but it's all about. I mean, when it was brought in in Russia, it, it was. It was all about you know, driving a wedge between between the external, the internal. It's all part of Fortress Fortress Kremlin. They're all against us, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and the, there's huge protests in Georgia by the people saying that this is this is a thin end of the wedge. This is this is going down that line. So it's been going on for two days now. Big protests in the in the in the capital. So far, only tear gas and water cannon used against the protesters. Sixty six arrests. I'm told. In fact, Natalia was reporting for us from Turkey. So it is a breaking situation. I mean, we, we need to pay attention to this and we need to do a deep dive on on Georgia. Like I say, invaded in 2008, still with Russian soldiers. I think about 5,000 Russian troops camped out in Georgia. And it's it, it's it has been largely overlooked since the full-blown invasion, but one we, we very much need to pay attention to. And Aliona, I'd, I'd be very, very interested in your, your views here on, on what's happening is this is this all bubbling to a head now? Is this what we're seeing, or is this is this just has this got a lot more a lot more to run before there's any meaningful change there politically? Thank you, Don. Well, I would respond to that by saying I really hope so. I really hope that it will bubble up to to a head and kind of trigger some sort of change in the country. Because just for the context, um, I mean, in just watching videos and, and footage from the protests last night, I almost had a deja vu and it really reminded me of the revolution of dignity we had in 2014, which I was a part of because we were also waving the EU flags and were insisting on joining the civilized Western society where human rights are actually respected and we're now being pushed towards Russian authoritarianism. The important thing to, to watch, just to put this into context in the region, is to understand what's happening in Georgia and what could it initially, eventually boil down to is to, to see what's been happening in Moldova, Ukraine and Georgia. These are the three crucial countries that kind of create this tendency in the region that could be watched closely. So Moldova was the very first one who was invaded by Russia and they created uh, the so-called Transnistria region occupied by Russian proxies almost 30 years ago, um, if not 
it's now longer now, uh, when Moldova had its chance to kind of move away from the post-Soviet space and join the European community along with Romania, because Moldova does have strong ties with Romania. The population is Romanian-speaking. Many identify as Romanians and have dual citizenship, Romania being one of them. So Russia has kind of put their foot on the ground in Moldova to stop that from happening in the only way they know how to. The next one was Ukraine. Uh, right after the, you know, seeing that Ukraine is moving towards the European community after the Orange Revolution in 2004, they have realized that the country is on its way to Europe. They tried to install the controlled president, President Yanukovych at the time, who was, as they hoped, was following Russia's agenda. But, you know, as soon as he failed and was overthrown, they decided to invade the country to put their boot on the ground in Ukraine and stop us from joining any European institutions. Prior to that was Georgia, because they were the first ones who had their pro-democratic revolution in 2003, the so-called Revolution of Roses, when they tried to move away from their Soviet leader, Shevardnadze. He was overthrown, Saakashvili, who is now being held in jail by the Georgian authorities. And we talked about him as well, Dom, on the very first podcast when I joined. He became then the president. He tremendously changed the country. They moved forward. They, they went ahead to become a democratic, highly developed country. They've done a lot, loads of reforms. Of course, corruption being the Soviet legacy was a strong element in there. And that inevitably kind of pulled that down. Eventually, with the change of government, we kind of followed the same pattern with going back and forth from the pro-European politicians to pro-Russian politicians ruling the country, the same path Georgia had to sadly take. And currently, they are in almost the state that we were in shortly before the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, when we had a pro-Russian president controlled by the Kremlin, and hence, was the, that was the agenda for the, the policies in the country. And I believe they are witnessing the same thing. We've seen the difference of reaction to the war in Ukraine between the population of Georgia, the society, and the government, when the government opposed and tried to uh, prevent from implementing sanctions on Russia for speaking out against the war in Ukraine too loudly, etc., so I feel like they have surpassed that, that fine line where the society was taking it and not getting involved to now trying to silence the society and, you know, name all these foreign agents and people having seen what has happened in Russia up until this point, they definitely don't want Georgia to go down that route. So yes, to answer your question in a very long-winded way, I do hope that things will not stop here in Georgia and they will be taken forward. Well, thank you very much, um, Aliona, Felicity and Dom. Um, Dom Nichols, can I come to you first? What are your final thoughts for today? What are you looking at? What will you be looking at in the next few days? Well, we've got to, got to keep an eye on Georgia. We need to do a deep dive into that. I'm just about to dash off, going to meet uh, Svetlana Sikunskaya, who's the opposition leader in Belarus, or the Belarusian opposition leader. She's not in the country. A lot of her colleagues have been arrested. We're going to speak to her about Belarus and uh, possible future there, and as, as well as BIPOL. You remember this organization of former Belarusian security officials who apparently were behind the attack last week on the Russian um, AWACS plane, the airborne warning control plane that flew a drone in, landed on top of the big radar and then blew it up. So speaking to uh, Miss Sikhanovskaya about that, about her uh, hopes for the future of Belarus and whether or not uh, or which orbit that country is likely to, to continue in for the next, uh, the next turn of the wheel. 
Thank you very much. Dom, Aliona or Felicity, would you like to go next? I was just going to say, I, one one positive image which I saw yesterday was that the streetlights are on in Kharkiv for the first time, I think, since the full-scale invasion started, which I was there in September, and it's it's a very weird darkness when all the street lights all the lights it's very it's really strange when you're in such a big city and everything is quite so blacked out so seeing pictures of the street lights being back on because these incredible guys at the ukrainian facility anyway yeah have managed to restore all these uh, all all these electricity plants to such an extent that they can put the street lights back on that 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 i found was a it was a really one bright shaft of light if you like um, in in a lot of dark things that have been happening Thank you, Felicity. And Aliona, would you like the very final thoughts? Yes, I think my initial thoughts today are with all women of Ukraine, having seen all the drama that they had to go through and the struggle of either staying in the country and dealing with living in the country of war, taking care of their children and their education, still trying to provide a safe and secure environment for them. Many of the women in the occupied territories getting raped and violated by Russian soldiers in the most horrific ways and most of the elder women getting either executed or committing suicides, just not being able to deal with that and, you know, the absolutely horrific mental health toll that it's taking on the whole Ukrainian nation and women in particular since today's International Women's Day. So I would definitely like to draw attention to that and make the world ask the world to to stay with Ukraine, stand with Ukraine and support the women, which is very much needed and will be needed long after the war. And just when it comes to generally the war in Ukraine, certainly I will keep an eye on events happening in Georgia. I have many friends there, both in in government bodies and in civil service sector, who I will be rooting for and hoping for the best outcome for their country. And um, my eye for the next few days will be on Bakhmut, where my brother currently serves. So I'm watching closely every single movement in that area. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest or sign up to Dispatches our Ukraine newsletter which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox we also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day including insights from regular contributors to this podcast you can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter spaces follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it to our listeners on YouTube Please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.